This is Carmen Smith, and welcome to I Smell a Rat podcast. This podcast will shine a light on the undercurrent of the human experience from all angles and through the lens of race, gender, and a myriad of different perspectives. My guest this evening is Mr. Austin R. Cooper, Jr. So Austin is an experienced government affairs, diplomacy, and public relations professional. He has over 25 years of related experience and accomplishments working in senior level positions on Capitol Hill as a state lobbyist for the city of New York under former Mayor David Dinkins and with Edelman Worldwide, Hill, and Knowlton. For years, he also served as the vice president of government affairs for the Turner Broadcasting System in Atlanta, Georgia. Austin is currently the president of Cooper Strategic Affairs, LLC, which provides government relations and communications counsel to government and non-government organizations in Washington, D.C. Austin is also the managing editor of the House D.C. Newsletter of Washington Informer. Our House explores challenges confronting Black homeowners in D.C. In former capacities as vice president of government affairs for Good Works International in Washington, D.C., Austin understood economic, political, and social trends in Africa and develop strategic relationships with members of the African diplomatic corps and key political business leaders throughout Africa. Now, Austin comes with a wealth of experience. He has his MPA from Columbia University and a BA from St. Augustine's University. He's a member of the Mu Lambda chapter of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated and serves on the board of the William O. Lockridge Community Foundation. Austin is also a political columnist for the Washington Informer and the Narrative Matters. This is Mr. Austin R. Cooper, Jr. I affectionately call him Doc. Welcome to I Smell a Rap Podcast. So before we get started, Austin, how have you been? Carmen, thank you so much for that wonderful uh, introduction. For a moment, I was wondering who you were talking about, but thank you all so much. I am doing well and so proud of you and your work that included this podcast. Well, I'm so glad you took the time to sit down with me and meet with me. Today's topic, we're going to talk about historically Black colleges and universities and what they mean. And we want to delve into what that means then and now. So my guest and I are both products of HBCUs, the same one, in fact. So historically, Black colleges and universities, HBCUs, are institutions established prior to 1964, whose principal mission was and is the education of Black Americans. Note, our first HBCUs were established prior to the Civil War, Cheney University in Pennsylvania in 1830, Wilberforce College and Lincoln University in PA in the 1850s. Now, I won't give a history lesson here, but it wasn't until the federal government, along with the Black community and others, stepped in that other HBCUs were born. Few statistics here. In 1994, about 280,000 students attended the 103 HBCUs. Overall, enrollment of HBCUs rose by 26% between 1976 and 1994, but virtually all of the increase occurred between 1986 and 1994. The 1976 to 1994 increase at HBCUs is slightly smaller than the 30% increase that occurred at all higher education institutions. Now, Austin, you and I are clearly part of that statistic. And just a note that most students attending HBCUs enroll in a four-year and in private institutions. 
Now, Austin, you recently wrote an article on HBCUs, and I quote, today, here are more than 100 HBCUs in the United States. Collectively, these institutions serve roughly 300,000 students each year and serve one in 10 Black students throughout the country. Many students depend on HBCUs as a chance for education. HBCUs also enroll significantly more first-generation college students and students from low-income families than traditional colleges or universities, according to the report. Nationwide, 75% of students at HBCUs are Pell Grant recipients. Even in their necessary role for offering access to higher education, HBCUs face challenges of their own. Despite the important role they continue to play, many HBCUs struggle with the lack of investment, dwindling enrollment, and most recently fall out from the COVID-19 pandemic, unquote. So Austin, what's changed? Clearly the numbers seemingly to be roughly the same. Looks like we lost maybe three colleges closed or something else happened. And the demographics have certainly changed with more non-Black students enrolling in our institutions. But tell me what's not obvious to the average eye. Give me your insight. You know, one of the most significant changes that have impacted uh, college enrollment today, as opposed to when you and I were matriculating almost 40 years ago at St. Augustine's in, uh, in Raleigh, is the cost of going, you know, going to college. These costs today would have been absolutely prohibitive to my parents. When I was a student at St. Og, and this May will be 40 years since I finished, the tuition, Carmen, was $5,000 a year. That included room and board, that included you know, your meal plan, and that included most of the you know, related costs of books. I was blessed that I did not have to take out uh, loans. You know, at the beginning of each semester, my dad gave me a uh, certified check for uh, $5,000, which I took to the uh, Bursar's office. But I remember 5000 was a big number to me, even as a 16, 17, 18-year-old. And I recognized the sacrifice that my parents were making for me. And I recognized how blessed I was when I simply... I had to present a check and head over to the bursar's office, whereas I saw many of my classmates, my uh, a, a roommate in particular, would be uh, meeting with Mrs. Uh, Holloway and others in the financial aid office, negotiating how they were going to successfully matriculate the, at St. Aug. That, to me, has been the biggest prohibitive challenge for our students. $5,000, which I suspect was the average you know, tuition of HBCUs now, tuition at St is uh, at or about thirty, thirty-two, thirty-three thousand $33,000 at St. Aug. I can't even imagine. And you know, like you, Austin, you know, my grandfather made a commitment to me during that mm-hmm. time. My parents unfortunately split up and were getting a divorce. And, you know, he said, if you come down here to the South and come down to school here, I will finish paying for your college education. And like you, You know, he went in there, dropped a check down. I didn't have to worry about it. In fact, the next year I was privileged because of the grades to be able to get a scholarship with that GPA, take some of the weight off my grandparents. But, you know, my grandparents were retired. Mm -hmm. And so getting 5,000, I think I remember, I think the total was like 6,200, you know, like you said, Mm -hmm. with all the Mm -hmm. books and everything. Mm -hmm. I can't even imagine. And like you, Carmen, my, you know, 5,000 per year, that's 20,000 
you know, for the four years. So I am, uh, you know, happy to say that I probably shaved off at least six, maybe $7,000 of that uh, burden that sacrificed by my parents by getting scholarship, you know, every bit helped. But despite that, as with your academic achievements, uh, also lighten the financial burden of your grandparents. Nonetheless, it was still a financial challenge for them. I, I agree with that. So let's talk about, because, you know, in the beginning, I talked about what the reason and the purpose of HBCUs are, you know, historically Black colleges and universities. Now, true enough, we had maybe one or two non-Black students that went to, you know, St. Aug. But talk to me about the change in dynamics or demographics that we have now, because now, in some cases, historically Black universities, they may still be predominantly Black. They have a larger population of non-Black students, whatever that mixture is. Can you talk to that just a little bit? Absolutely. You know, Carmen, when we were at uh, St. Aug, uh, to your point, I recall one, maybe two white uh, students while we were there. The majority of the population, the student population, was overwhelmingly uh, Black uh, African-Americans with mixture of uh, students from the uh, from the continent of Africa. For St. Aug in particular, I think the uh, the dominant country uh, from Africa in terms of our student enrollment was from the uh, country of Liberia. As you recall, our uh, college president, Dr. Uh, Fizel Robinson, uh, made it a point to visit uh, Liberia at least uh, once a year and to recruit students. I've not looked at the numbers, you know, the makeup of the student population uh, now at St. Aug. Uh, it's been a couple of years since I was on the board, but I do recall there was an increase of uh, white students from the United States, as well as white uh, Europeans who chose to attend St. Aug as they did other HBCUs. You know, I really think it goes to the mission of, uh, of St. Aug and other HBCUs, which was to uh, give people economically and socially disadvantaged people, you know, Blacks in particular, the opportunity to get an education, to get an experience, to be exposed in a way that you would just would not at white universities. And I suspect that equally welcoming feeling has been a reason why some Europeans and some whites have chosen to attend the uh, HBCUs. That's interesting that you brought that up because I remember my track coach back then, um, Coach Billy Wright, he was mm -hmm. a white mm -hmm. kappa, um, went to Norfolk State. But that was one of the things that he said that he would have never been able to go to college had it not been for an HBCU. And so you bring up a point because we as Black people have always been a welcoming people to our fault and to our disadvantage sometimes. But I was just wondering, you know, given today's climate, how do our folks feel when the schools have been for us because we haven't been able to get in other schools or it wasn't available to us. I know when my dad was there, it was the segregated South. So in order to play sports, if he wanted to play in the South, he had to go to an HBCU mm -hmm, school. Mm -hmm. So and I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on what you think today's youth might think, or do you think they give it any thought on non-whites coming to a school? And I will say, particularly in sports, looking at softball as a sport, my youngest daughter plays college softball. And I look at many of the HBCU schools, and there is very few Black young women mm -hmm, on the team. Mm -hmm, they've they've mm -hmm. gotten California girls. They've gone to other countries, like you said, They've gone other places. Give me some of your your just thoughts or insights about. You no, know, Carmen, you should say that forty years ago when I was uh, walking, you know, across the campus, 
the one or two white students that I saw, I, I believe that there was someone who was there from Iran. I forget his name. And I found it a bit odd of all the schools to uh, go to. Why would you come to uh, St. Augustine? I don't recall ever having that specific conversation uh, with him. I just assumed that other schools might have been more cost prohibitive for him. Today's students, much more, uh, much more prominent to have whites choosing to matriculate historically black colleges and university. I mean, interesting enough, just before we went on air, I was reading something in the uh, New York Post, and it just, you know, rubbed me the wrong way, right or wrong. But a white student is suing the Howard University School of uh, Law for uh, $2 million, claiming or charging the university with racial discrimination, and that the school only offered him a setting that was challenging, that was racist, that was offensive, and that was unwelcoming. You know, in all honesty, my first reaction, and just being totally transparent here, was that he went to that school with the intent of one day suing mm-hmm. the school. And I don't know whether that's right or wrong. I don't know the person, but just reading it rubbed me, you know, the wrong way. It's like, you know, I guess now as I'm older, you know, I would be quicker to uh, question why specifically they chose an HBCU like St. Aug or Howard or elsewhere. If I can also add, Carmen, you mentioned earlier that HBCUs have been uh, welcoming to Black students and all students, but also HBCUs have been welcoming to white professors. You recall during our tenure at St. Aug that we had two white professors, Dr. Elma Schwartman, who taught European civilization, and Dr. Alan Cooper, who taught political science. You know, both of these gentlemen, as you recall, had superior, excellent academic professional credentials and could have taught anywhere. Uh, Dr. Schwartman's uh, wife, you recall, was a professor at Pete College. I always admired these two who, in my opinion, Carmen, could have gone anywhere but saw the need to be a part of the ministries of HBCUs to our young people. That's such an interesting point. And I, and I had a French teacher. She lived in Chapel Hill. Very proper lady. Dr. Ruth Payne. Yes, Dr. Payne. I forgot about Dr. Payne. That's yes, right. Yes, Dr. Payne. You know, I learned so much from them. And, and to your point, not just those folks, but any of our professors honestly could have taught Absolutely. anywhere Absolutely. in the point. country that they would have. And you, that brings up, you know, another point. But it's like, I agree with you there. I would pause to wonder what the intent of that person was, that young man, because they could have gone to anywhere. And is it the case that he couldn't get into any other school? You know, that reverse quote unquote reverse discrimination in this case, to me, just seems like a ploy or a plot because there's so many schools out there. And you're going to tell me you chose to go to a black school, you know, and and couldn't um, get in somewhere else. And Carmen, had he been made to feel unwelcome or whatever at a white school, would he sue that white school for anything, much less $2 million? Yeah, I agree with that. Shifting gears a little bit. So we've been talking about St. Aug quite a bit and putting it into our our conversation. But let's talk about St. Aug specifically. And we call it St. Aug. It's St. Augustine's. But it was established in 1867, chartered as the normal school and collegiate institution had several name changes and became St. Augustine's College as we know it in 1928, offering its first baccalaureate program. And I believe the first degree was conferred in 1931. 
In 2012, it became St. Augustine's University, which I still have a hard time. Me too. Me too. <laughs> Me too. Just, just keep it college. <laughs> yeah, like, they're like, where'd you go to school? St. Augustine's College. I'm like, oh, sorry, it's university now. Uh-huh. But some of the accolades. And the reason that I'm bringing this up, because lately, and I think this topic was near and dear to me now, because with the entrance and the departure of Coach Prime, Deion Sanders, at Jackson State, you know, it highlighted HBCUs, but it also, with any spotlight, there's a shadow. And so I wanted to just get into the positive side, but I also wanted to talk about some of the, you know, undercurrents that do exist on our campuses. But some of the accolades that St. Aug in particular has, it was the first school to offer nursing to African-American students in the state of North Carolina in 1896, long Mm -hmm. time. It was the only hospital in North Carolina to serve African-Americans until 1960. And one of its patients was world heavyweight champion boxer, Jack Johnson, in 1946. First HBCU to own an on-campus commercial radio station, WAUG 750. We remember those days when it first came on. (laughs) We were there and a television station, WAUG LD, currently found on TV8, Spectrum 1231, and now streaming on Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fires TV. Alumna Anna Julia Cooper, prominent writer, educator, and scholar, was the fourth African-American woman in the United States to earn her doctorate degree. And near and dear to my heart, St. Aug's track and field program, prominent under coach George Pup Williams, my forever coach, winning 39 national championships, has produced over 40 Olympians, including three gold medalists, all without proper facilities. We'll talk about that. No, that's a whole nother conversation. (laughs) Until recently, that's a whole nother conversation. And in 2020, what I understand is they started the first HBCU cycling team. And in 2022, started the first HBCU women's rowing team. I'm trying to figure out what body of water they went. But, you know, let's talk a little bit about our experiences, you know, as students. Now, unlike you, Austin, I spent my first two years at a PWI. Some of you don't know, PWI is predominantly white institute. And I remember freshman year being in the cafeteria with some of my black friends And the president of the university walked up to greet us and started by saying, you people. And I was like, what a way to feel welcome at part of something that was like, what? I'm like, did you just say that to us? And so also the reason, which is a reason we have black student unions and other organizations for people of color on campuses, because our needs don't seem to be met in some specific way. Again, another conversation. Now, I transferred to an HBCU resulting from some of my conversations. I had some cousins who, like me, grew up in predominantly white schools our entire lives, but they encouraged me to give it a thought to go into an HBCU because they thought that my life would be enriched by doing so much. And I did struggle at that PWI for a number of reasons. Number one, I left and went to college for the first time. I was sheltered, didn't realize how sheltered I was until I went off to college. I met a boy, a white boy. My mm-hmm. father was mad at me for a few months. <laughs> and then the bros were mad at me because they were like, you didn't give a brother a chance. A chance. Like, oh, mm-hmm. Lord. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I just didn't feel like I fit in at all. But transferring to St. Aug was the best thing I could have done. Meeting you, being welcomed into your inner circle was life changing. Those conversations at Godfather Pizza on Friday nights. Oh, I forgot about that. Pizza and talking <laughs> politics. Yep. And other current yep. events. 
Now, see, these are some of the opportunities that, for me, that we share, that I thought about before we had this conversation, but the opportunity of fraternity, sorority, connections, and lifetime networks. Uh, Let's not talk about the many guests, and I'm sure you'll get into that in a minute, that came through St. Aug, where we shared the stage and panel together. We both interned as college students for the North Carolina Legislature Black Caucus. We were both Alfred P. Sloan Fellows, sharing our experiences at Harvard University, John F. Kennedy School. You went on to Columbia. I went on to Carnegie Mellon. And these are opportunities that I believe would not have existed if we had not attended an HBCU and St. Aug in particular. So talk to me about those experiences and what they meant to you. You you brought up so many uh, pleasant memories. As I referenced in the article that I wrote for the Washington Former a few weeks ago, going to an HBCU in my family was an unspoken expectation. I don't know if I can go so far to say rule, but certainly, you know, an expectation of myself and of my two younger sisters. I mean, I remember being, uh, you know, in high school, you know, one a few times mentioning I want to go to Harvard. And my dad would look at me. Nobody here has Harvard money, including you. And that was really, you know, the end of the uh, end of the discussion. But my dad was a uh, 1957, as you're aware, Carmen graduate of St. Aug. My mom is a 1958 graduate of uh, Bennett. And on both sides of the family, uh, the majority of my aunts and uncles on the Cooper side and the Hopkins side went to HBCU, you know, Bennett, Lincoln, St. Aug. Morehouse. So when it came time for me to think of colleges, white university just didn't enter my mind. As I say in the article, my first choice was uh, with Morehouse. You know, the reason being, A, two of my heroes went to uh, Morehouse, my Uncle Donald, who's a well-known epidemiologist, Dr. Donald Hopkins, and uh, my other idol, uh, Martin Luther King, both went to uh, Morehouse. And I thought, Carmen, you know, 16 years old, I really wanted to be exposed to Black political leadership and the Black, uh, the great Black thinkers of our time. And I was under the impression that I could only get that exposure by going to uh, Morehouse. So as I say in the article, you know, back then, all freshmen were required to remain on campus. I applied in the summer of 79. I got a reject letter. And the reason being, at the time, and it's still a rule now, all freshmen were required to remain uh, on campus. Well, I was already skipping 12th grade. I was 16 years old. So my dad took me up to the high school got a complete transcript, mailed it, and I got an acceptance letter and a call maybe a week or so later. But the challenge was, that I just said, all freshmen had to remain on campus. So they said, just come on down to Atlanta, and there's always some students who don't show up. Well, that was a little too suspicious and suspect for my parents. So dad said, uh, why don't you uh, you know, go to uh, St. Aug, and if you don't like it, uh, transfer. So we got an admissions pack. You remember Dr. Spragans? I yep, believe, yeah, yep. Doc Spragans was the uh, what the admissions officer, and he taught my dad, uh, I believe it was sociology, 20, 30 years uh, before. So I got into St. Og. And you know, Carmen, I will never forget first pulling up with my family in our station wagon in August of 1979. It was late in the evening, and we were doing a drive the, of the campus. And I remember finding, thinking to myself, how beautiful and peaceful mm-hmm. campus uh, looked. You know how you first pull in, and there's yeah. the quad, and all the beautiful buildings, and the grass was just freshly cut. I just had a, uh, a, good, uh, a good feeling. 
So I spent my first semester at uh, St. Aug, Dr. Brazil Robinson, I got to know quite well. He also taught my dad. Dr. Swartman, who I initially referred to, uh, taught dad uh, European history. And my intent, Carmen, I promise you, my intent was to transfer to Morehouse in January. I got them the delayed acceptance letter, and I said, okay, I'm going to do St. Aug for a semester, and I'm going to transfer. And what I realized, Carmen, within a few weeks, as you realized as soon as you got there, was all of the Black political leaders that I wanted to be exposed to, that I was reading about and seeing on TV, and only thought that I could get by being uh, matriculating at Morehouse, these same uh, men and women, when they came onto St. Aug's campus, they were either coming from Morehouse or they were on their way to Morehouse. So some of the folks that, uh, you know, you and I saw in, in, in ad names here, I remember, you know, Jesse Jackson, mm-hmm. uh, not white, but certainly George McGovern came through. Uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. came through. Daddy King came through. Arthur Ashe came through. Jesse Jackson came through. Uh, Roy Wilkins, who at that time was the executive director of the NAACP, NAACP. uh, came through. I mean, the exposure that I was looking for, I immediately saw that I was getting there. As you may recall, Dr. Robinson, our president, was so well respected in uh, local, state, and national education and political circles that he was a magnet for a lot of the Black political talent to come onto the uh, onto the campus. I called Morehouse and said I was good at, at Morehouse, and I never, you know, never looked back. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. Be sure to check out part two, where we get into more details on historically Black colleges and universities. Austin and I reminisce about time at our alma mater as we talk about the challenges, financial uphill battles that HBCUs face today and the impact that those HBCUs had on us now that we are adults. Thank you for joining us today. Be sure to tune in again as we explore the undercurrent of the human experience through the lens of race, gender, and a myriad of different perspectives. Thank you.